0: Most people think of protein as muscle building, but the largest source of protein in the human body is collagen.
1: Turns out that just protein percent of calories is probably the single biggest factor when it comes to how many calories you're going to eat. That benchmark
2: around protein is so powerful because people people will overeat carbs or fat if they don't get enough protein.
3: People on a low carbs diet normally will have lower serotonin over time, but higher adrenaline, higher dopamine.
4: The further you diverge from daily practices of your ancestors, the further you move away from health. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Muslim Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pokolski, And when we talk about optimization of health, optimization of body composition, ultimately this aspiration to live long and strong. Um, there's there's definitely consideration to how we should actually eat. Today's podcast is brought to you our amazing friends over at Real Mushrooms. Real Mushrooms are back. I sponsor the podcast, realmushrooms.com/slash Ben for the highest quality mushrooms on the planet. Now, I say that confidently because I've I've searched. Uh, you guys know that I really care about the quality of everything that goes into my body. I don't want to put things into my body that's that's anything less than the best because when I put in something that's low quality, like hey, I'm going to go buy my vitamins at Costco. Like, whoa, 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 hold on a minute. Like the the quality of the of the ingredients matters. You know, vitamin D is not vitamin D, right? Like, there's different levels of quality, and oftentimes these low quality supplements are coming with additional things in there, fillers and binders and, and and toxins that your body has to detox. Your body has to cleanse. We're trying to do something good for ourselves. We're do great, like, and, and instead we're doing something bad. So, real mushrooms is a, is a vetted. organic, incredibly high-quality mushroom company that I've been working with for, gosh, years now, since 2000, I don't know, maybe 17 or 18. Been around a very long time. And they still continue to come back because you guys support them. So thank you for supporting our sponsors, realmushroomscom slash Ben. You're going to get 25% off your first order and 20% off thereafter. This podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Organifi, organifi.com slash muscle. Most of my listeners now are using Organifi because they try it, they love it, incredibly good tasting, incredibly nutritious. They do have a new pumpkin spice gold flavor, which is uh, reishi turkey tail, really calming. So it's, an, it's a great alternative to like sleep supplements or melatonin to calm you down in the evening so you can recover from your hard day or recover from your hard workout. It's a beautiful, warming, and anti inflammatory blend of spices that truly tastes amazing. Organify.com slash muscle guys thanks for being here What are some of the high impact habits that you implemented at that forty seventh year to really make a shift i'd already done
0: years of writing about health and, and diet and i'd already i'd already recognized how bad sugar was i'd kind of cut sugar out i 'd already recognized about uh, the the inflammatory nature of industrial seed oils i'd, I'd cut some of those out um, i had uh, but I had uh, what I hadn't addressed was my um, particular uh, susceptibility to issues from grain. So when I cut grain out of my diet, uh, gluten in particular, wheat, um, it was transformative. It really, it really was like such a light switching on for me that it prompted me to start to think, wow, if I've been assuming that grains are good and that I've been as, a, as an endurance athlete, I've been chowing down on a thousand grams of carbs a day for thirty years, thinking I got a carb load, you know, between every every day for the next workout the next day, and that grains are the cheapest, best, most effective source of carbs. Therefore, grains have to be good for me. Um, if if I had I, the fact that that I was unwilling to look at what grains might be doing to me. Suggested to me that there might be tens of millions of people like me who just assume, yeah, grains. It's it's the base of the food pyramid. It's like the government has been promoting it for all these years. Why would you think? The grain always has your best interest at heart, of course. (laughs) So, so just that one little shift caused about an eighty-five to ninety percent reversal, and then the next shift came from incorporating. Um, in in my case, uh collagen supplementation. I started doing collagen okay. peptides and I started doing it for my achilles, but I noticed that my gut uh, was was healing even more like like that last ten yeah. percent uh, of my gut that needed to heal was was responding uh, well to collagen That put me on a on a whole investigation uh, toward um, looking at collagen as maybe the fourth macronutrient you know we have fats, proteins. Carbohydrate and of the proteins, most people think of protein as muscle building, mm-hmm. but the largest source of protein in the human body is collagen. It's it's skin, hair, and nails. It's part of bones. It's uh, connective tissue. So it's fascia, it's ligaments, it's tendons, it's it's cartilage. It's all of this stuff that isn't muscle um, that needs um, collagen peptides to rebuild the raw material to rebuild this. And if we don't consume it in our diet. This, this soft tissue starts to um diminish in in efficiency and effectiveness. Uh and I noted that that in the 60s, in the 50s and 60s, um we we were still doing stews and broths bone broths, and you know, the grandmother would make a, you know, uh a, a pressure cooker stew or something like that. Um we as kids, we would eat jello, and jello was a source of of uh of uh, collagen peptides, of gelatin. Um, even my mother uh, and and most women of those days ate Knox gelatin. They literally had these packets of Knox gelatin that they would stir up, and it would be for, for their nails to help their nails. Well, as we get to the 80s and 90s, the the um, the health Nazis start coming on and saying, you know, Jello is bad for you, and you can't have Jello. So so Jello suffered a huge hit in terms of sales. Um, so kids were no longer eating jello um, everybody was eating the choice cuts of n- the meat you know the the new york steak or the prime or the whatever but they weren't eating the the nose to tail parts of the animal um, bone broths was, was was ceased to be a thing so nobody was even eating bone broth. so we had like a 20 year period there where nobody was really getting any collagen in their diets. and you and i started to think about all the the athletic injuries that i that i would see the acl tears and the and the, the you know the, the the torn rotator cuffs and the uh, and the twisted ankles that shouldn't have ever been uh, that susceptible to a twist on the football field or on the basketball court. And I started to think you know like here's here's a nutrient that's been missing from the American diet for twenty years and it's causing problems. It's literally causing problems. So that was sort of an interesting little. Uh, uh, you know, uh, aha moment that I had that started with my own issues. And then I started to look at, well, what's going on with the rest of the rest of the world. And, and then I became a, fascinated with the idea of, of collagen as a supplement.
4: Talk to me, Mark, about the um, challenges or the issues with gluten and grains. So gluten seems to have its own set of challenges, but grains in general, there's always arguments, right? There's people saying yeah. you need grains and legumes, for your microbiome those are really important for to establish a diverse microbiome and then i get your argument that says hey you know what these things aren't doing us any good where you know if you had to argue both sides of that how would you approach that
0: okay so both sides on the one side i would say um some people do do okay with grains um wheat in europe for instance is far different from wheat in the united states it's it's wheat in the united states is grown specifically for its gluten content, for its pro- glutinous protein, it's the plant storage form protein. Um, typically, it's, it's so tightly wound in these, uh, in these grains, in these seeds, that the human body has not had enough time in terms of evolution to adapt to the easily uh, digesting of, of these uh, glutinous proteins. So with some people, it's horrible. If you have um, celiac, you can die from eating grains. Um other people um like myself I can eat um I can eat corn as a grain ground up corn um I can have uh you know a, a, there's a few other types of grains that I can have wheat is an issue for me but I can have a couple of bites of bread and it's not you know I've, I've repaired my gut enough that I can reintroduce as long as there's a lot of butter on the bread I can have a couple of bites of bread um other people, zero issue. Grains are their, you know, the basis of their diet. They have syrup for breakfast, they have a sandwich for lunch, they have uh pasta for dinner. Um now, another argument there would be that grains are just a cheap source of calories that convert to glucose pretty quickly. So you would say, well, if you're trying to eat a low carb, low glucose diet, then don't even we will we won't even worry about the 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 um the proteins in grains. We'll just talk about the fact that they kind of convert to, to sugar so quickly in your bloodstream that they probably aren't, they're not real good nutrition. Um, you know, uh, the other side of that argument would be you, you say, well, what, don't we need grains to feed the microbiome? No, we don't. There are a, a tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of people on the carnivore diet right now who are experiencing their best bowel habits ever because of because of eliminating grains and eliminating uh, vegetables and you would ask yourself well what how can that possibly be doesn't doesn't don't we need to uh use bran and fiber to scour you know the the intestines and clean it out and don't we need these um uh, these soluble fibers so that the uh part of the microbiome the bacteria living in your in your colon can create short chain fatty acids to feed the lining of the of the 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 cells lining the gut, and that is a uh, that is one uh, avenue that we could we, we could pursue, but it's not a requirement. So the microbiome changes with the diet over time. So whatever microbiome you have today, if you change your diet um, significantly and, and kept to that changed diet, your microbiome would be would be very noticeably different in say three months or four months or six months. So the idea that we need um, fiber, that we need uh, grains in particular to produce or provide fiber as a substrate for the microbiome is, is a misnomer. It's just, it, you, yes, if you're a, if you're going to eat a lot of fiber, then your microbiome will adapt to that will produce short chain fatty acids, but um, collagen Having, having mentioned collagen collagen is a great substrate for those bacteria to convert to um, butyrate to and to short chain fatty acids
4: I didn't know that yeah. um, so we've heard of MCT doing that I've never heard of collagen doing that
0: yep yeah. I mean there's a lot of things that that those bacteria can do look there's there are three thousand four thousand species of bacteria in your gut and they're all it's always changing and 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 they become specialists at, at Certain types of things. So, if you shift your diet dramatically from one uh, way of eating to another, the microbiome, which may be uh, caught off guard initially for a couple of days, which in some people causes you know gastric upset, diarrhea, um, you know whatever you've you've heard about uh, radical changes to a way of eating, over time, if it's a healthful way of eating. Uh, the microbiome adapts to that. Those bacteria that are good at, at extracting, um, you know, the 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 MCT, the short chain fatty acids from from the um, from the collagen or collagen peptides, they kind of take over and they do their thing, and 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 a new form of balance is arrived at.
4: know, in the fitness industry slash health industry, there's a lot of information. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of things that people are saying are the most important factors. And I think when, you know, and you'll, you'll agree, I'm sure is when you get to the top of the totem pole, you know, when I say top of the totem pole, the people who actually are are doing it, you see a lot of commonalities. And so I'm curious what kind of led you down that path of discovery.
1: Right, right. So, you know, I started out just not knowing anything about diet and exercise. And, you know, in, in medical school, they don't teach you crap about this stuff, basically. And, uh, you know, I was raised kind of vegetarian, like that's supposed to be the best diet. And um, that, you know, that obviously didn't lead to instant perfect health being vegetarian. So I knew that was kind of like not the answer, right? Um, I started out uh, from a low carb direction, I had some patients introduce me to low carb dieting and realized, hey, this is pretty powerful when people just reduce their uh, refined carbohydrate intake, they immediately, um, eat less calories and lose fat and they're healthier. And every single thing you can measure, it's better. Their insulin sensitivity goes up and all their numbers improve and everything's, you know, just automatically better. Uh, so I was a huge low carb fan for a while. And then I'm like, Oh, wow, maybe this paleo thing is, uh, you know, where it's at because I realized that, Oh, when you eat less processed foods and you eat more protein and fiber, you have higher, you know, satiety and you don't eat as much. And so I kind of fell through the the low carb paleo, keto, carnivore, you know, wormhole that so many people have fallen through. But but then I kind of realized, oh, wait a second, Uh, the low fat people have just as many success stories. And anyone who just intentionally lowers the fat um, percentage of their diet is going to immediately have a higher protein percentage, higher satiety per calorie, they're going to have weight loss. Also, in fact, when you equate these uh, low-carb and low-fat groups, you get the same outcomes. And then I realized, uh, yeah, that's only when protein percent is matched. And then I started going down this rabbit hole of protein percentage. And uh, then I became familiar with the the research of Drs. Raubenheimer and Simpson, these famous uh, guys in Australia who discovered the protein leverage phenomenon. And basically, there's this protein leverage phenomenon where humans and and many animals basically eat until they get enough protein, and only then do they stop eating. And that's why protein percentage is one of the biggest drivers of ad lib energy intake out there. And that's why every single study in the medical literature looking at ad lib diets, like people eating as much as they want, uh, fixing protein percentage is the most important variable just right off the top. If you're comparing carbs and fats, you have to fix protein. Well, why is that? Uh, it's because protein percent blows everything else out of the water. It completely destroys any difference between carbs and fats. And then I really started looking at, you know, what do different protein percentages, uh, Uh, produce in terms of phenotype when it comes to humans or any animals. And so we have all these studies where literally the higher the protein percentage uh, an animal eats, the fewer calories they eat. It's almost perfectly linear up to about 50% of calories from protein in humans. You have this completely linear um, ad lib caloric intake where the higher your protein percentage, the less calories you're going to eat when you, even when you can eat as much as you want. And it it turns out that there's this huge spectrum of protein percentages where if you're designing an obesogenic rat chow, you're trying to fatten rodents or mice or lab animals as much as possible. You want protein all the way down at 10% of calories and then kind of equal proportions, carbs and fats. And then if you want the very, very thinnest lab rat or mouse, you crank their protein percentage all the way up to about 50%. And they just eat fewer and fewer and fewer calories, even when they have unlimited access to food. And then you kind of look around at the real world, and you realize, <clears throat> you know, hunter gatherer world world macronutrient average for hunter gatherers is about thirty three percent of calories from protein. Uh, but the standard American diet is all the way down at about twelve point five percent protein. And then this obesogenic rat chow is at ten percent protein. And if you look at things like uh, the uh, databases of people who've successfully lost weight and kept it off. The one thing they have in common is they've managed to get protein to about 20% of calories. And if you look at studies where um, you take pre-diabetics and, and force them to eat 30% of calories from protein, you completely cure 100% of all pre-diabetes. Uh, and then you look at elite bodybuilders who are usually you know, living at 35% protein or maybe even 40% protein. Uh, from calories uh, of calories. And, and it basically it turns out that just protein percent of calories is probably the single biggest factor when it comes to how many calories you're going to eat. And <clears throat> that's why, you know, if low carb is an instant win because you're going to have a higher protein percentage. Low fat is an instant win, higher protein percentage. As, l- as long as you do these right, if you, right. if you somehow do it wrong, I mean, you can do low carb wrong by just eating tons of fat and the protein percentage doesn't go up. And And, and so why is that
4: wrong? So there's a bunch of other questions in there buried in there that I want to ask you, but why is that wrong? Because you have this whole ketogenic community saying like, you know, you need to have less than 10% uh, protein. So, and the rest is fat. So why is that wrong in your view?
1: Right, right, right. Well, uh, uh, it's because I have so many patients who have stalled out on ketogenic diets. Mm -hmm. And if, if keto was really the answer to just being thin, and healthy, everybody would be thin and healthy, right? The whole keto community would be like amazing. Everyone yeah. would be blown away. It just really doesn't happen. Like every single person who goes on keto loses 20 pounds instantly, loves it, and boom, stalls out hard and just stays there forever. That's everybody on keto. The whole low-carb world lost 20 pounds instantly, loved it, and then stalled out hard. Um, and the reason for that is because basically – You increase your protein percentage and your satiety per calorie when you eliminate refined carbs. But then, if you're eating, if the protein percentage is too low or not improved from there, you're basically going to still overeat calories from fat. Your your macadamia nuts and your cheese and your butter, and um, you're gonna you're going to get thinner and then plateau out when your protein percent doesn't change. And and so the the way you get past that is to crank up the protein percentage, eat leaner proteins, uh, get rid of uh, really high fat foods, refined fats, like, you know, butter and heavy cream and oil and high fat dairy and all this stuff. And then you can actually bust through this sort of keto plateau. But you can do the same thing on a low fat diet. And if you're really smart, you're doing both, like, uh, you know, like someone like yourself, like a bodybuilder is basically just as low carb and low fat as you can get at the same time. And that's really where I'm coming at it from. That's yeah,
4: interesting. So there's definitely times, uh, you know, the way I, I still advocate nutrition is you eat as many carbs as you need to fuel performance. And obviously protein is going to be the majority of the diet. So I want to kind of reverse back to something you said, right? When you kind of started off ch- talking there was, said you said ra- you were raised vegetarian And then you went on to say that was obviously not the right way to do it. So talk to me about that because it's that's not so obvious to a lot of people. I still get a lot of people who have a belief that veganism or vegetarianism is in fact a really healthy approach.
1: All right, yeah. So I was raised vegetarian, and uh, unfortunately, there were a lot of like fake foods that you know were basically a low protein percent and highly processed and highly refined and. Um, low nutrient density. And so uh, if you do vegetarian wrong, you know, uh, you're basically going to go nowhere. And that's what I was doing. So um, the, the type of vegetarian that I was raised is sort of a religious vegetarian, where it's just a sin to kill animals, eat them. And so if you just basically eliminate Um, high quality animal foods, your the protein percent of your diet actually goes significantly down because all of your plant foods on average have a lower protein percent than all of your animal foods on average. So it's actually like a slight downgrade to just decide I'm going to religiously avoid animal products.
4: So if you were to make an argument for vegetarianism, because I'm I'm very curious to hear smart people's opinion especially we've done it. So because there's still this, this, you know, segment of the, of the population of the world that believes vegetarianism and veganism is the healthy way to do it. What would you say to that?
1: Well, okay, there is some magic there. And that's uh, when it comes to energy density. So there are two huge drivers of ad caloric intake. The first one is protein percentage It's the biggest one that's the most important one. That's, Probably the biggest lever anyone can pull. The second one is energy density of the diet. And basically the lower the energy density of your diet, the less calories you're going to automatically eat, the less added calories you're going to eat. So um, what happens when you go on like a whole foods, plant-based diet is your uh, the energy density of your diet just immediately goes way down. I mean, like you look at the, uh, the Kevin Hall study, Um, last year, where he put people on like a high fat keto group, and then a low fat plant based group, the keto group was animal and the, uh, the low fat group was plant based and the the low fat plant-based group ate 700 calories a day less automatically with unlimited access to food. But it turns out they had half the energy density of the overall diet compared to the higher fat, lower carb, keto, animal-based side. So um, if you're just going on a whole plant food diet you're cutting your energy density maybe in half which is a huge driver now <clears throat> you can actually have the best of both worlds where you're eating high quality animal proteins but you're getting the leanest ones you can and ones that have a super low energy density as well like egg whites you know amazingly low energy density the egg whites are ridiculously awesome because as you know it's 100% protein and a super low energy density. You can just eat pounds of this stuff for almost no calories. So if you're really smart, you're marrying those two together. But I would say that anyone who goes plant-based instant win to a certain degree, because you're cutting energy density in half. Yeah. So
4: I always joke that I'm 50% carnivore and 50% vegan. So the the idea is like really energy dense foods. So you said, I just want you to discern something for the audience. You said that you went from uh, low carb to paleo. Do you differentiate those two things?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So like, you know, my introduction to all this was, you know, basically like Atkins, uh, way back in the day. And I had patients who just said, Oh, hey, I just stopped eating carbs. And boom, I lost 30 pounds and uh, instantly cured my diabetes and my blood pressure has gone. I threw all my meds in the trash. And uh, this just blew me away. And I I saw this over and over people who just that if you just tell people don't eat carbs, there's so much junk that they're cutting out that it's kind of like this instant win. But it's a win to a point. And then, like I said, if you're replacing these carbs with high energy density, high fat, low protein percent stuff, uh, you're going to stall out really hard and go nowhere. And that's what happens to so many people on low carb diet. But so then for me, like paleo came along, and it was a little bit more nuanced. It was like, okay, you can eat some carbs, just don't eat these processed refined carbs in this certain category. And what it turns out is that this category is foods that are super low in protein percent and super low in minerals and energy density, As I mean, in nutrient density. So you're basically eliminating a lot of high energy density foods and replacing them with higher nutrient density, lower energy density foods. And so paleo was like one rung on the ladder Better than just low carb. And so back then, when I didn't really know what the drivers were and I didn't understand any better, I would just kind of religiously follow these one after another. I was like, oh, low carb's awesome. I don't know how or why. I just know low carb's awesome. Look at all these success stories. And then I'm like, oh, paleo's awesome. Look at all these people who lost weight. And so it, it, I had to fall through all of these and research them all. And then Finally, I could zoom out and see the whole big picture and what all the drivers are. And the reason every diet has a certain amount of success is because they're pulling the same levers, higher nutrient density, lower energy density, higher protein percentage. These are all like kind of different sides of the same coin. So anything you can do to increase protein percent, increase nutrient density, lower energy density basically lower refined carbs, lower refined fats, uh, processed carbs and fats, uh, you're going to win. Like, And so all these, these diet religions are doing the same thing, a little bit of different parts of all of these things. And once you kind of get the big picture, you can kind of zoom out and pick and choose and you don't have to be religious and you get to be agnostic with your diet, which is kind of my goal, basically.
4: Yeah. One of the things you mentioned a few minutes back is uh, appetite control and proteins influence on appetite control and satiety. And I'd love to have you talk about that a little bit. And, you know, is there, I mean, I think subjectively, we all know that that's pretty, um, pretty common. Is there, is there data on that? What are your thoughts on uh, what levels actually cause a decrease in satiety?
1: Sure. Absolutely. And, And so for me, the very most important concept of all is satiety per calorie, right? If I can give you this tiny food, just this one, you know, cubic inch of food that gives you a whole day's worth of satiety for like 50 calories. Um, you're done. You're set. Uh, you're just going to lose all the fat you want and just be as thin as you want to be. So it really comes down to satiety per calorie, which is the most magical and important concept of all. And it's definitely evidence-based as to what improves satiety per calorie. There's about nine things, that are proven in the medical literature scientific fact to improve satiety per calorie. First one is increasing protein percentage instantly improves satiety per calorie. Second one is fiber, grams of fiber per thousand calories. You increase fiber uh, you will improve satiety per calorie. The third one is a reduction in refined and high glycemic carbohydrates. So this is a evidence-based phenomenon. Uh, You know, if people eat just like juice and, toast and cereal for breakfast they're literally going to eat 300 more calories during the day if you reduce refined and high glycemic carbs you will eat fewer calories uh the 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 next one is actually eating less fat so unfortunately the more fat you eat the fatter you're going to be it's passive overconsumption, and and it's a scientific evidence-based fact that a reduction in fat will actually lead to eating fewer calories in fact you can take any animal and just pour fat on top of their usual food and they'll just immediately passively overconsume consume and get fatter and so uh the, the evidence-based things are basically higher protein percent higher fiber grams per thousand calories lower glycemic high index carbs lower fat in general um, increased water. So So
4: lower fat for satiety or lower fat for fat loss,
1: lower fat for satiety per calorie. And this is really, really important because all the keto people are like, well, that's stupid. I, I, when I eat butter and bacon, I get tons of satiety. Like I eat a stick of butter. I'm not hungry for 50 years. Fat's the best for satiety. Uh, And what they're not doing is dividing that by calories and coming up with satiety per calorie. So like, yes, but eating a stick of butter gives you a crap ton of satiety or you won't be hungry forever. Um, but that's a trillion calories. So satiety per calorie is actually garbage and you'd be better off just eating, you know, something way, way, way lower in fat. Um, some sort of lean protein, you know, for would be the best, but yeah, these things are all evidence-based higher protein percent, higher fiber, lower carb, glycemic carb, lower fat, um, lower energy density, lower processing, Um, you know, less processed foods, the thermic effect is higher. You have to process it yourself. It burns more calories. You get, you extract less calories from it. Uh, we have studies where you just feed peanuts to rats versus peanut butter and they get fatter on the peanut butter. So, uh, protein, fiber, water, higher energy density, carbs, fats, processing, alcohol. You want all those lower, um, nutrient density, minerals, and micronutrients. The higher those are the higher state calorie. So yeah, there's there's these definite themes that are all evidence based, that all improve satiety per calorie, and all make people more successful with a diet. And uh, the idea is you do a little bit of all these all at the same time, and you can't go too extreme with any of them. You can't eat 100% protein forever, and you can't eat zero percent fat, and you can't never eat any carbs. So you try to just take your existing diet and tweak all these levers up a little bit sustainably, a little higher protein percent, a little higher fiber. Little higher water, less processed, less carb, less fat, less energy density, less alcohol, um, more micronutrients. And you just tweak all of these as much as you can stand where it's sustainable. And that's, uh, that's honestly this whole PE diet concept that I'm talking about.
4: Ladies and gents, I want to talk to you a little bit about a challenge that I've been experiencing lately. I've been waking up a little bit stiff. I've been waking up feeling like my body's a little achy. I'm like, gosh, am I getting old? What's happening? I almost feel like the Tin Man when I wake up. My muscles feel tight. I feel like my joints are a little bit achy. And I wasn't sure why. And so if I'm being honest, I've been neglecting certain aspects of my supplement regime. And I didn't realize how just truly vital they were to my well-being. For the last three days, I've reintroduced this one specific supplement It's literally opened me up. I woke up this morning and I'm not exaggerating, dancing because my body felt so free. My body felt so loose. I felt like I had rewound the clock by 20 years. In my mind, originally, I was like, gosh, maybe this is like I'm getting old. Maybe it's sitting in. I'm like, what's going on? I wake up and I can't even move my shoulder or my hips. I'm like, this doesn't feel right. And then I realized, but I haven't been taking my magnesium. I know you guys have heard about magnesium countless times before. But the value that I've experienced just in the last couple of days by reintroducing a healthy dose of magnesium into my life and the right type of magnesium into my life is nothing short of remarkable. My brain feels better. My daily activities feel like less of a chore. And even my training just feels like I'm able to be loose and free and crush it like I know that I can. I hated going into the gym for the last few weeks because it would hurt. My muscles would hurt, my joints would ache, and I felt like I, I felt like literally the Tin Man trying to get my hands above my head. As soon as I reintroduced my typical healthy dose of magnesium breakthrough into my life, everything opened up. And I, if you're someone who's experiencing any of these symptoms around muscle soreness, or if you're someone who trains hard, or if you're stressed on a consistent basis, and you're not taking an incredibly highly available source of magnesium, I promise you're missing out on an opportunity for your brain to work more effectively, for your muscles to work more effectively, to calm down your nervous system, to give you more regenerative sleep. Head over to magbreakthrough.com slash muscle intelligence to get hooked up with 10% off your order from our amazing friends over at Optimizers. Once again, that's magbreakthrough.com slash muscle intelligence and use the code muscle 10 on any order of all of their incredible sweet products to benefit from this incredible product and this incredible offer thank you to Mag breakthrough thank you for being here enjoy the podcast we're talking about this book that you wrote the sacred cow which is kind of in your words a, a, a stake in the ground against the the vegan propaganda that we're all kind of being you know forced to consume or like the stuff that we're told is true around, um, you know, veganism being healthy or uh, vegan uh, dieting being, or sorry, vegan nutrition being better for the, the environment and things
2: like this. I'd love to have you just kind of dive into that. We were really careful to try to to make as credible a story as we could, which, uh, you know, is has saved us from the onslaught of, of some of the, you know, I think the vegan backlash, but ironically, some people out of the meat elitist scene um, were really cranky with us. So like this topic of is... Pastured meat more nutritious than uh, conventional meat, and the reality. And we're talking specifically about beef here. Like, um, yeah, if we talk about dairy or eggs or seafood, then the the pastured forms or the wild caught form is vastly superior nutritionally. Okay, but when we're just talking about beef, it's just not. And and the 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 reason for that is that things like cows. With these four stomachs, are so insanely good at taking crap food and turning it into amazing food nutrient upcycling. Mm. Like they're just insanely good at that. And there's a slight difference in the amount of omega threes between pastured meat and conventional meat. Um, you one would need to eat eight pounds of pastured beef to get the same amount of omega-3s that you get out of two ounces of salmon. Right. So it's not really the place to talk about omega-3 versus omega-6s. But when you you look at like zinc and magnesium and iron and all these other things, like just the the takeaway is that meat is really, really, really nutritious, particularly beef. When we start getting into chicken and pork and stuff like that, there's some of these other you know considerations that pop up there. But I, I know I'm kind of bouncing around, but those oh, are- You know, some of the big picture stories that we wanted to address, there are a number. So the the book starts off um, with the health consideration because we had these three topics, health, environment, and ethics. And we thought that we were going to start off with the ethical argument first. But as we started digging into everything... What we noticed was that, and this is, let's put a caveat here. Let's assume that what I'm saying is accurate. I may be totally wrong. It may be totally bullshit. Like history may look back and be like, no, this whole regenerative ag thing it was false. But let's assume for a minute that it's accurate. What we started discovering was that in addition to like the production side being critical for the health of grasslands and, and biodiversity and all these other things, when we were looking at the health consideration for humans, it's really, really hard to grow humans in a healthy fashion, completely absent animal products. And when we look at some vegan and vegetarian cultures, there's only been a, vegan cultures for a bit, relatively brief period of time, like fifty to sixty years, really. And you know, we've had uh, more vegetarian-based cultures like India and some places like that, um, different different Buddhist countries. But you very consistently see a a challenge with um, B vitamins, iron, zinc. You see a shortened stature. You see problems with the dental formation. Um, you know, there's there's a very predictable set of circumstances, and it, it it it's very similar. You only see things like that in developed countries in very poor segments of the population who are forced to eat a super monochromatic starch rich diet. You know, they right. don't get access to animal products, and you see these similar failures to thrive. But what we ended up finding was it was interesting we were going to tackle the ethical topic from the perspective of veganism is not a bloodless affair you know like factory combines collecting beans and and grains and whatnot it kills a lot of animals applying herbicides and pesticides kills a lot of organisms and that's all i think really important stuff but it changed the equation a lot when we realized that um it is damnably hard to have a healthy pregnancy and to grow a, a viable, healthy human being on vegan and vegetarian diets, vegan right. in, in, in particular. So how does that change the ethical consideration? Like if we're, we're uh, particularly for, um, you know, like the previous year, there was so much uh, global unrest around like social justice topics. We are telling people who are already poor and already living at the margins that the way that they should be eating is vegan, which is in in my opinion, going to further exacerbate health issues, developmental issues, the the disparity between um height, stature, intelligence because of, of superior nutrition. And I th- think that there, there's a big ethical like, you know, thing that we need to have a discussion around all that. And so those things ended up changing it such that we started off with health and we really got in and looked at, you know, are the claims around the challenges of meat consumption and animal product consumption accurate, you know, with like cancer and diabetes. And, and that's actually pretty easy to unpack. Like if somebody has a little bit of patience to read that, like you can you can unpack that pretty quickly. Healthy user bias. Um uh, pretty shoddy epidemiological research, food frequency questionnaires. Like if you can get somebody's attention for a little while, you can kind of go through that.
4: I love to get uh, down the path of like ancestral practices. So I think one of the things you're most known for around the world is uh, understanding ancestral practices, specifically around eating uh, in a way that maybe is most in alignment with our ancestors. And I'd love to have you maybe just begin by defining what that might look like. I know it's a broad statement, but you could just start at a high level and then we'll
2: chunk down from there. Yeah, you know, it. I don't think the ancestral model is It is helpful only in asking questions, in my opinion, or primarily huh. in asking questions. You know, I don't think it's the place to draw super hard concrete conclusions but it's a mm. wonderful place to go to go throw a rock in and see what type of ripples we we get mm. out of that and so um you know like amounts and types of protein uh uh feeding frequency feeding in frequency you know those are are places that we can find some pretty interesting data And in. it it's fairly clear that within hunter-gatherer populations protein was generally fairly fairly high now this would vary from location to location like if we we look at like the hadza or the san uh, who are modern hunter gatherers but in these very marginalized environments um they're not doing as much big game hunting like they're they're kind of uh, they're really foraging the the whole span of the the ecosystem. And so you see kind of a balanced macronutrient ratio, but in general, you didn't see protein intakes go much below 17 to 20% of total calories. And you didn't really see it go above 30 to 35% of calories. And that's mainly because of a protein toxicity limit. Like at some point, if you, if you overeat too much protein, like the, the body can't deal with the ammonia and the, uh, uh, this is called rabbit starvation within, um, uh, kind of, uh, ancestral health circles. Like there was an observation when people were expanding across the Americas in particular, that if they, they had access to like very lean proteins, like rabbits, and not any carbohydrate or not any significant amounts of fat that they would get sick at some point and and it was due to this uh, rabbit starvation so mm-hmm. we kind of had some brackets there um car- carbohydrate and fat intake really varied with season with location and and so i think that you know that's um uh you know something that's really labile and i think that we see that in our you know any type of like If you run a gym, if you coach people, you just notice, oh, this person does pretty well with more carbs. This person does pretty well with fewer carbs, and maybe that changes over time. But I I think that that scores up. I think one of the big takeaways that we can have from ancestral eating is that um, protein is really important, both from a satiety standpoint, but also from a nutrient density standpoint. And and I know you asked about mTOR earlier, and I'm I'm actually really excited about that stuff. So maybe we'll dig into that a little bit, but... um, uh, one of the just benchmarks of, of whether it's ancestral eating or, you know, just kind of modern healthy eating. And I, I think again, other than, um, some of the mTOR phobic vegan and and keto folks, like ironically, there are folks in the keto community that are more terrified of mTOR than like the, the vegans are, they're recommending like 40 grams of protein a day, which I think is, is madness, you know, but, um, outside of that we see that anybody that works with people and makes a living working with people particularly around like body composition and 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 you know aesthetics and maybe performance to some degree it's kind of like this gram of protein per pound of lean body mass up to a gram of protein per pound of body weight seems to be a pretty good bracket there yeah. and then you you figure out if the person does better on higher carb or lower carb or a combo but that, that benchmark around protein is so powerful because people people will overeat carbs or fat if they don't get enough protein. If people get adequate protein, then they will tend to self-monitor spontaneously the, the carbs and, and fat on on the other side of that.
4: One of the most interesting things that you're known for is neurotyping. I'd love to have you just walk through what that looks like and you're obviously, tying in someone's personality with how they should be training, and I'd love to have you explain it to me because I want to hopefully understand it.
3: Well, it, it has evolved a lot through the years, and it became more of a tool of understanding a person, and that's probably a, a reflection of the place that training occupies in my own life now. I mean, I'm I still trained. Obviously, I like to train, but it's not like life or death. Okay, not not. It's not centered around training anymore. So I think it's a lot, and the reality is that when you work with clients, training is not their passion most of the time. They like the train or they like the results. So it, it's a lot more valuable to understand how they function. Why are they a certain way? What will be their trigger? What situation will allow them to become the best version of themselves? Okay. So that that, that originates from uh, Charles's Polygon system. He was the first one to use the Brave Women Assessment to get a clue about brain chemistry and stuff like that. Now, the, the Brain Women Assessment does have some limitations, but still a pretty good tool. Uh, and and I, I went on from there and just added up and added up just because I like to understand, first of all, my own limitations. I wanted to know why I was the way I was. Why did I have self-esteem issues when I had no justification in the way I was brought up to be mm-hmm. self-conscious. And I, I always had low self-esteem as far as I can remember. Anyway, so basically the, the, the principle is understanding our brain chemistry, the neuro, various neurotransmitters we have in our brain, uh, how they impact personality, how they impact what triggers you, how they impact what drives you, okay? So for example... You have dopamine. I mentioned earlier. Like obviously, someone who is more dopamine dominant, or so either very sensitive to dopamine or produce lots of it, will be more, more easily motivated, more driven, stuff like that. You look at another neurotransmitter, like glutamate, for example, which is an emotional amplifier. Someone who has excess glutamate will normally be extremely self-conscious, very moody, uh, mood swings, uh, they, they extremely emotional. Uh, can get easily offended, so right from the start, like you have like the two stereotypical, you have like this the the, the alpha male and you have the beta male. Like, but but it's of, of course it's it's a it's a spectrum. But so you have a wide range of neurotransmitters and they all have a function in the brain. And understanding these functions allows you to know well if that person has that characteristic, it's likely or in part because this neurotransmitter system is either extremely efficient or deficient. And when you map out someone's neurological profile like that, first, it allows you to make like better decision from a nutritional standpoint, for example. I I believe that neurotapping is a lot more uh, connected with nutrition and training Mm -hmm. uh, because you can actually impact neurotransmitter levels with the nutrition you have, for example, Well, we know that serotonin is made in the gut, so just gut health will allow you to increase serotonin. Uh, People on a low-carbs diet normally will have lower serotonin over time, but higher adrenaline, higher dopamine. So, for example, if I want to increase someone's aggressiveness or or, uh, intensity or competitiveness, I might cut carbs for a short period of time. Just that's by the way, that's why some people, when they go on a keto diet or intermittent fasting, they say, Well, I have tons of energy, bro. Well, that's because your adrenaline and cortisol are through the roof. That's the reason. Okay, when you have low blood sugar, your body releases cortisol to mobilize toward glycogen, and cortisol increases adrenaline. Cortisol increases the conversion of no adrenaline to adrenaline. So, cortisol and adrenaline go together. That's why when you're stressed, you can't sleep. Because adrenaline is kept high as long as cortisol is high. So the reason why when you go intermittent fasting, you have tons of fuel is because adrenaline is high. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can backfire by making you resistant to your own adrenaline, and that will lead to a burnout. So you need strategies to balance things out. Now, intermittent fasting, I do it quite often because I see benefits from a health perspective, but it can't be done if you have a stressful lifestyle because it will just lead to excess cortisol and adrenaline, and it will lead to a burnout very, very quick. And and the, the best proof that nutrition impacts neurotransmitter is on a keto diet. Some people you know will report feeling absolutely awesome. Like my anxiety went down, I'm sleeping better, I'm more focused. And you have people who are the exact opposite. I feel like crap, I'm depressed, I'm aggressive, I can't sleep. It's because a keto diet will, for example, decrease glutamate and increase GABA, which is good if you have excess glutamate and low GABA, but it will also decrease serotonin. It will increase adrenaline dopamine. So if you already have low serotonin and if you already have high adrenaline, it will make you feel like shit. If you have very high serotonin and low adrenaline, so you're a kind of a lazy person, it will actually give you more drive. So it's, it, it, that's one of the benefits of understanding your, your, your neurological profile. Training-wise, you can also make better decisions. For example, are you someone who needs to kill yourself like, in a set to feel good? Okay, for example, you have some people who absolutely need to take a set to failure. Otherwise, they feel like they are not training. Well, you need to understand what kind of person that is because that person you'll need to lower the training volume. Because you can train to failure or you can not train to failure and do tons of sets. Both work. Okay? But you can't do both. You can't train to failure and do 30 sets per body part unless you're on a massive dose of steroids and even then, Okay? So understanding, well, what will get that person motivated is pushing extremely hard. Well, I'm going to use lower volume. Other people like the feeling I like to feel the pump the burn or feeling like I'm accomplishing something maybe you need more volume but lower intensity etc cetera, etc cetera. that's just a very small portion because it's like a 12 hours course but basically understanding what will motivate someone how they respond to stress how they can tolerate stress and how to modulate their brain chemistry through nutrition
4: that's interesting have you looked at the, the genetics implications in uh, hunger signals so like i mean hunger signals ne- uh, obviously neural uh, predispositions as far as like comp t and these things and then we have you know some people oxidize fat better some people oxidize carbs better some people you know the different regulations around hunger signals are often can be can be seen genetically i'm curious how much you've looked at that
3: stuff yeah absolutely and other uh, other markers also for example methylation status or the, C, the type of comt enzyme Yep. So, so, And that plays a big role because, for example, someone who breaks down adrenaline very easily or breaks down dopamine very easily, which would be a fast COMT enzyme, transferase. Well, as long as adrenaline or dopamine is high, well, you don't feel the need to eat food. I mean, w- when adrenaline is high, it's pretty simple to understand, right? When I'm fighting a tiger. I'm not going to get a hunger pang when I'm fighting a tiger because that's not good for survival. But you
4: might get anxiety, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. It when you're ang- is up too long. Yeah, yeah. So you're not hungry, and as far as dopamine, as long as it's high, you feel pleasured. So you don't need a reward. See what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so someone with a slow COMT enzyme, meaning that the adrenaline and dopamine lingers a long time once it's been released, they will actually have problem eating enough. They can go hours and hours and hours without eating or thinking about eating. They have no hunger. Whereas someone with a very fast COMT enzyme, well, they will need to eat more often or at least will feel like they need to eat a lot more often, and they will get those cravings a lot more easily.
4: See, where if you look at I, I tend to be someone who my catecholamines stay elevated, my adrenaline stays elevated, but what that turned into for me as a child was I feel stressed, I feel anxious, mm-hmm. it's lingering, I learn how to cope with it by eating. Yeah. So that was like a stress response as a kid. I didn't know any different, I just felt this feeling and, and you know, a cookie made me feel better. So, but now looking back at it, looking at my genetics, because my COMT was poor, and my adrenaline stays elevated, my catecholamine stay elevated, that's what actually led me to kind of reflexive stress yeah. eating, which is very interesting, right? As an adult, what, what I can overcome it.
3: Is, what happens is, okay, and. The, the best way, the best supplement, quote unquote, to decrease cortisol and adrenaline, because both are connected, is carbs. Carbs is the easiest way to decrease cortisol and adrenaline. That's why, for example, people naturally crave carbs at night, okay? because carbs will put you in parasympathetic mode. So, so when you were anxious because of the eye adrenaline, subconsciously your brain wants to shut it down. Mm -hmm. So it made you crave sugar or carbs or or foods that are high in carbs and fat and sodium because these will actually bring adrenaline back down. So that is absolutely a side effect of excessive. But in in that case, it would be a combination of high adrenaline, but likely low serotonin. Because if someone has normal or high serotonin, it can actually counterbalance the adrenaline and you stay in that somewhat optimal state. But the moment you have low serotonin you can't and that's what anxiety is. Anxiety is nothing more than your neurons firing too fast. So you have the neurotransmitters that make your neurons go faster, dopamine, adrenaline, glutamate, and you have the neurotra- and noradrenaline and you have the neurotransmitters making the neurons go slower, serotonin, GABA, uh glycine for example, Acetocin, so, so it actually lowers it. So if your brain chemistry makes you anxious, it means the neurotransmitters responsible for activating or, uh, or having an excitatory reaction are much higher versus those that can calm the brain. So a strategy that your brain will ask you to do is, well, give me something to counterbalance that imbalance.
4: Forget what you think you know about fat loss and open your mind to a new mechanism. What do you think you know about fat loss? Everybody, everybody think, what do you think you know about fat loss? Do you think it requires a calorie deficit? Maybe. Do you think it requires a ton of hard work? Maybe. Do you think it requires genetics? Do you think it requires sacrifice and effort? What if I said all of those are not true, right? Maybe they're conditionally true in certain scenarios. What if I said there's a whole bunch of things you could do before that, that were way more effective and easier, as long as you just do them consistently? Maybe sounds interesting, right? And I'll tell you, I'm not going to, I'm not going to suggest it to you today. I'm going to try to convince you of anything. I'm going to show you compelling evidence. And I'll walk through it. So, what I said I would show you is like, well, we'd all aim to be, uh, all aim to be, we should all aim to be lean, healthy, and muscular, right? Why do I say healthy? Oh well, man, you, well, a few reasons why we see healthy. Being uh, lean and big is useless without health. We see all these bodybuilders kicking the bucket. May they rest in peace. It's really sad, man. It's really sad to see these guys kicking the bucket, and they just aren't. They aren't. Um, aware right when you're when you're young and you're full of piss and vinegar you're just not aware i was there right like you don't care and i'm, I'm very blessed to have got out of bodybuilding with amazing health and amazing vitality amazing energy amazing focus uh, an amazing business an amazing family but i created that that wasn't a gift right that wasn't a gift i created that how did i create it by well, having a higher standard than everyone else so i didn't hold myself to the standard of i want to just not be fat anybody ever say that I, wanted to, I, want to, I don't want to be fat anymore. Fuck that. I want to be lean. I want to be shredded. I want to be healthy. I want to be muscular. Every time you use those softeners, you use those kind of small pussy goals, you're, you're telling yourself it's not that big of a deal. Or maybe you're telling yourself that you don't believe in yourself. Like, I just want to lose like 5, 10 pounds. Bullshit. Be honest. You got to lose 50. Right? Be honest. Be honest with yourself. Sometimes the pain is necessary. And what happens if you don't lose 50 pounds? Man, well, five years from now, I'll probably be diabetic, right? Okay, let's fix that. I'm out of heart attack. Okay, that's a big pain. You have to be real with yourself. Otherwise, you can, you know, like, listen, I don't want to lose any more friends. So I'm working towards starting a coalition for bodybuilders to help these guys not die young. There's markers we can see, right? We can tell. It doesn't just matter what, looks, what your body looks like on the outside. It matters what you look like on the inside. All right, you want to be lean. What does lean mean? The absence of visible fat. That's important. Not just because you want to look good. Fat is a metabolic hormone. uh, Sorry, a metabolic tissue. It releases enzymes and inflammatory molecules and can impact your conversion of testosterone to estrogen. The higher your fat, the less testosterone you're going to have across the board. Okay, so we want to realize the higher our fat body, the body literally releases an enzyme, an aromatase enzyme that converts testosterone into estrogen. Higher the fat, why is my testosterone low doc? Well, cause your body fat's too high. Step one, there's other reasons. We'll walk through all that stuff today. Body fat is extremely inflammatory. So if you, it, all, all illnesses for humans are associated with inflammation, all of them. So if your inflammation is up, anybody ever do their blood test and see like CRP being elevated, C-reactive protein? That's that, right? Sometimes a whole bunch of other things are there. Like triglycerides and A one C, all of those are indications of of um, inflammation, right? It's associated with all cause mortality. I don't want to die, so I pay attention to inflammation. Why do we want to be healthy? Health is not just the absence of illness, disease, or l- limiting ailments, is it? It's the this is an important definition. Health is the ability to adapt to imposed demand. What does that mean? If I put a demand on your body, like I say, hey, let's go for a run. If I say, hey, let's go lift this weight. Does your body have the ability to do it and adapt? How many of you guys have a list of things that if I said, I want you to write these down right now, that you wrote down that you used to be able to do that you can't anymore? Well, that to me is deteriorating, not just quality of life, but health, right? Health is the ability to adapt, to to impose demand and to perform well under any and all circumstances, right? You may not have that goal, but I tell you, you should. Right. If the goals that you have are too small, you will not pursue them. They won't pull you out of bed. You have to have a big goal and a reason why you're going to do it. All right. So here's a fun fact the the further you diverge from daily practices of your ancestors, the further you move away from health. Everybody read that. The further you diverge from daily practices of your ancestors, the further you move away from health. How many of your ancestors sat on their ass and watched television on Netflix every night? How many of your ancestors stayed up till 11, 12 o'clock with artificial lights on the inside? How many? How many of them you think didn't walk for miles and miles every day to go fucking fetch water and food or hunt their food or, or pick their, their vegetables? How many of them? Ask yourself that. The further you diverge from your ancestors, the further you move away from health. What are the ancestors? What do they do? They moved. They got sunshine. They probably had a lot of sex. They probably ate really good food, whole foods. Right? This is all your, how many of you guys have families who have ancestors who have like 15 plus kids? There was a lot of sex being had. There was not much else to do. Like, let's have a lot of sex. Like, why did they have a lot of sex? Because they were, they were healthy. The testosterone was, was elevated, right? I don't want to dwell on that. Why do we want to be muscular? Being muscular is not just aesthetic. What is it? The presence of strength, fitness, performance, mobility, and the absence of joint pain. Anybody know when you guys train for a long period of time and go, man, my joints hurt from training? Well, let me tell you a fact. That's not par for the course. That's not supposed to happen. It means you're doing it wrong. If you're training and your joints hurt, ladies and gentlemen, not too many ladies, there's a couple here though, it's because you're doing it wrong, not because it's the way it's supposed to be. And I don't care how much you're lifting. None of you guys have lifted more than me and my, my joints aren't broken. Sometimes I get some bumps and bruises from when I was an idiot in my early 20s and late teens. But for the most part, man, I feel like a newborn baby, right? That's the reality. You have the ability to do that. I aim to return to my 25-year-old self. Right? I, I aspire for wisdom and youth. Wisdom means I want to have the wisdom of the graybeard and the youth of myself at 25, the youthful bigger. Anyways. All right. So here's a little story that just, just perfectly before we get into the real tactics, and we don't have too much after this, but before we get into the real tactics, this is important for you guys to know. Everybody giving me your attention. How many of you guys have a story around your genetics or your family or your history or how it's going to be hard? So do you realize that in this exact moment, in this exact moment, your body on the inside is perceiving the external environment and the internal environment. So, right now, my body is perceiving the light, it's perceiving the, the air, it's perceiving uh, everything around me. If there's a lion in the corner, it's perceiving that. Even if you don't acknowledge it, 90% or more, 98% of things are unconscious, meaning your body is perceiving it subconsciously or unconsciously, right? So, your body's perceiving all these things around you, and then it's creating this internal uh, adaptation to the environment. So if it's cold, your body warms up. If it's hot, your body starts to sweat. Your body's just always adapting, right? So in every single instant right now, and for the rest of your life, and for every minute since you've been born, your body is turning genes on or turning genes off based on what's happening in your life in this moment. With me? So if I go and go for a walk, that turns on different genes than if I sit on the couch and eat a donut. Different, not not good, not bad, just reality. So the body that I have right now is a perfect reflection of my lifestyle and my genetics in combination up to this point. Does that make sense? So yeah, we all, have, we all get born with like a, a deck of cards, right? We're all handed to cards and we're born. Some better, some worse. It's all subjective. Each and every one of you is great at something. You're better than me at many things, I'm sure, right? But if you guys want to have a great body, what we need to do is we need to find a training system that matches your lifestyle and your genetics and allows you to express the genetics that you want and you can do this right you can you can express the best genes that you have in a way that allows you to be lean healthy and muscular for life if you implement the daily best practices so here's what i want you guys to know everybody read this you are not your genetics you are not your parents you are not your past you are not your story right what am i i am my daily habits i am my skills my habits my beliefs and my process that's what i am and if i want to change who i am or reflect in a different way of who I am in the future. I need to change those things. Thank you for being here, ladies and gents. Thank you to our sponsors for today. And uh, I appreciate you guys joining us. And if you're not already subscribed, to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast, uh, head over to all the amazing places where you can subscribe to podcasts. So we are on YouTube, we are on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else you can subscribe to the best podcast in the world. Thank you very much. Our numbers on the podcast continue to grow because of your reviews, your shares, and ultimately your subscriptions. So subscribe, review, and share with at least one person you know and love who wants to live their greatest life in a body they love, whether you're a coach, whether you're someone who wants to transform, we're here to support you. Drop me a message on Instagram, drop me a message on YouTube, or a DM. I do read the messages if you guys see that. Thank you for being here, and uh, live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode.